This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have with us mattress professor Grant Gilliatt. And Professor Gilliatt was a professor of um, at the medical school in bioethics, and he's also published a lot of books, I believe 12. And the latest book to come out early next year is The Neurodynamic Soul, Investigating and Reflecting on the Relation Between Neuroscience and the Soul. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Grant, I understand that you've written a new book, The Neurodynamic Soul, coming out in January. I expect we will spend most of our time discussing your book. However, I would like to spend the first part of our interview discussing artificial intelligence and some of its social implications. Great. Are are we close to producing the breakthrough to true artificial intelligence, or is this just another advance in machine learning? Well, I think that's a very penetrating question because intelligence, despite its um, transformation into a scientific term used in cognitive theory, is itself a very broad term, encompassing encompassing much of what human beings do and what demonstrates their uh, cognitive advantage over animals that do not have the same level of language-inspired consciousness. I was thinking about this. It's clear to me that uh, human intelligence is uh, the highest form of intelligence that we know of. But it isn't clear to me that animals lack intelligence. 
Um, we <coughs> dolphins and have been known to assist or save life of species outside their own species. And wild wolves have been known to accept into their pack and assist humans. Wolves will care for or feed a sick or injured member of their pack. I'm not sure that a robot, unless specifically programmed for this particular action, can decide on their own to do any of these things. Could you talk about this? Well, I think both examples are deeply interesting. Dolphins clearly do enjoy playing with human beings. Um, Opo the crazy dolphin in the north and other tales about dolphins acting for the amusement of human beings they happen to encounter and enjoying the interaction reach far back into history. And I think one of the earliest books that in fact inspired me when I was a very young person, uh, a child in the Cub Scouts, was the Jungle Books. And there, of course, we see Mowgli obviously recognised by the wolf pack, in particular female wolves, as being a relatively helpless but potentially very important addition to the pack, as he in fact proved to be an addition to the Sioni wolf pack that increases their joint fitness to survive. And so those female wolves, and particularly his mother wolf, with whom he develops a close attachment, recognised what human mothers recognise. Vulnerability and extensive potential and kind of instinctively respond to it. Yes. Well, a naturalist and, um, in the Canadian North who've done studies both of wolves and also of the reindeer people or the people that live in the far North uh, have been lived among wolves in a positive way. Now, when you have guard dogs guarding property and they're trained to attack trespassers, they will likely do this, but they can, for various reasons, not decide not to attack or obey their trainer, particularly if the trainer is not there. In other words, they they make they are able to make a contrary decision. I'm not sure that robots, once they're programmed, unless their program uh, includes some kind of different options, they won't make up their mind to change. The, they won't change their mind. They won't change their own programming. 
um, they'll go kill that. Um, they get face recognition or if there's, there's a house, they'll, the drone will come into it. It will destroy. And it won't matter how many uh, children or babies or, or defenseless people are in that property because it, it doesn't mean anything to a drone. Yes. Do you think there are ethical reasons for not using artificial intelligent robots to kill people? Well, I think that thing that you point out is extremely important because I think neglect of my son is deeply involved with war crime. And there you have to distinguish between a denial of normal human decency on and humanity towards people whom you've identified as enemies and an actual legitimate engagement in um, combat against armed foes. Now, the former um, aggression and, in fact, murder against the innocent, except where unavoidable, is a war crime. And the latter, engaging in legitimate combat, although it may, in fact, inflict casualties, lethal casualties, on your foe, is not a war crime. Now, some people might regard that pacifist, for instance, as an artificial distinction. But he and others involved in war crimes at the United Nations see a legitimate difference there, which is similar to some of our worst predatory and cynical um, abuse of the natural world. So I think there is a deep ethical reason rooted in our common humanity to share some of those instincts that we see in a nascent form in both dolphins and wolves. One of the things that worries me about um, machine learning and artificial intelligence, especially in the case of war, is that it seems to me that over the last, or well, since World War II, beginning with bombing of um, cities which started in Spain and Guernica, uh, we've, we've distanced ourselves from the results of war to a, a higher and higher extent. You can be sitting in a, a bomb shelter in Nevada and uh, directing a drone to uh, someplace in the Middle East that you know really nothing about yourself. Yes. And 
Uh, to me, this is, um, it helps us desensitize. We're more willing to kill uh, people. Yes. And also, any way that we can, the other, of course, problem is we, during time of war, we demonize our enemies. Yes. We can see this happening right now in um, both sides, in um, Israel-Palestine. Yes. <coughs> but, so, do you think that... Um, So-called killer robots should be made illegal. That the UN should. Well, I think here we see exactly illustrated before our very eyes a a divorce between humanitarian instincts deep within us and the kind of hedonistic and manipulative intelligence that many human beings develop to a very high level. Now, I think when those two are rightly combined, they can be a real force for human advancement and human good to be widely shared. But I think when the cognitive abilities get divorced from the human instincts, they become um, they become understandably dangerous, and in fact prone to a kind of evil that ancient scriptures have always warned us about. If the cause of self or the locally identified tribe overcomes those very instincts which make us human. And so therefore I think balance is everything. And that balance, I think, is very hard to strike. And that's why I think we have an international or UN-sponsored Centre for War Crimes Investigation and Prosecution so that a very careful and reasoned and the best available judgment processes combining instinct and thought come brought to bear on these occasions which happen so um, spontaneously and unexpectedly in war. But war is not necessarily unexpected. Most wars, it appears to me, if people worked at it and used their intelligence, their emotional intelligence, and as well as their rationality, if people started working on it soon enough, solutions and compromises could be found that might prevent the war. And sometimes through hubris and also awareness of our own great power, in the case of 
the West, the United States, or in the case of uh, China, China, uh, or Russia, uh, their idea of self-interest is quite narrow at times, and they don't look and figure out what will happen if we do this, if we send in um, the Chicago boys to uh, Russia at the time the, the Berlin Wall has come down and at the time that Russia is very is seeking a new way. And you have a predatory economy that can't stand up and then you then you get a Putin who brings order. Yes. And also we have a a tendency to have contempt for people that we disagree with. And you see this all the time. You even see it uh, among academics. Yes, exactly. Um, The idea of, for instance, of censoring people or uh, calling people names because we disagree with them. Yes. Sad. Um, Seems to be a, um, it's along the same line as the way states act. Yes. When you make that comparison in the way you do, I think that is quite um, persuasive. And I do think that most war crimes represent a kind of override of our human instincts by a kind of uh, intelligence which is totally based on achieving your end. Uh, And the borderline there, I think, is so hard to negotiate that a very human institution propped up by very ancient um, precedents, in fact, traceable back to some of our earliest wise human works, is needed to kind of animate or inform the centre of the judicial process, whereby a balance has to be struck a very difficult and subtle balance between um, the interests, legitimate interests of a state and the illegitimate um, despoliation not only of another group of people but also of the world in general. I think the Greeks used to say that the most dangerous idea you could have or action, thought, feelings you could have were hubris, overwinning pride, being sure that we know and that we're wise. I think that is right, which is why Sparta had certain limitations that Athens 
was able to reason and argue their way out of, so that Athens was never the same military um, force that Sparta was able to muster. The 300 Spartans at Macedon were legendary, of course, but they were driven by a kind of ruthlessness and even disregard for their own lives that allowed them to become historical or almost pre not prehistorical, early historical heroes in a way that the Athenians struggled to become. I think I'll play a piece of music and we talk about your book. Okay.
Well, that was um, from High Risk by Luke Hurley uh, on the famous um, 17th century mathematician and spiritual mystic Pascal, The Heart Has a Reason. Oh, you've written, written a book about reason, the heart, and intelligence, or mind. And can you tell us a bit about that book? Sure. Um, I guess it's the paradoxical saying that the heart has its reasons, which does in fact um, reach far back into antiquity and was part of the um, reasoning, there the word comes in again, why the ancients, knowing that they felt or appreciated some things in their heart, that actually their senses were only clues to or or points along the journey. The ancients had this confused idea about which parts of the body underpinned intelligence. Well, we now consider it confused because we have a very cognitive view of consciousness. But in fact, when you take okay, seriously... Can you, can you um, explain what you mean by cognitive? Well, consciousness seems to encompass a whole lot of things and seems to be such an essential part of the mind that we have to find something in what we now think of as the mind correspond to it. But it isn't like that. Consciousness is, as I said in a recent paper for Otago University, everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, that's partly because our whole being and its response to the world informs our consciousness. And some of that cannot be cognitively um, abstracted in an accurate way. So that's why we say that there's something more than what we now think of as the psyche or the subject matter of psychology which is part of what neurodynamics or neuroscience is the basis of. And I and my colleague recently um, used that term, the soul, in order to capture that much more holistic understanding of what human psychology is all about. What does it mean to say that the body animates, the, I mean, the soul animates the body? Well, it's a simple thought, really. I mean, 
the soul with all those interwoven strands of relationship to the world um, actually provides the kind of life of a sentient or fully and deeply and inclusively conscious being who can respond to art and sport and all kinds of things that involve a kind of understanding that enlists your whole self in appreciating it rather than just an abstract um, conception of yourself or the way you function. Is conscious thought reducible and identical to the functions of the brain? Well, I mean, doesn't science, as Newton saw, and as science is, and moderns way of looking at life, don't we tend to reduce things to their parts instead of seeing things as a whole? Well, I think that's exactly right, and it's because it's completely necessary for causal relations. But it's extremely misleading when applied to supervenient relations or relations or conceptions that try to encompass the whole of the living being rather than the functioning parts of a living being. And of course... In the early modern period, where Newton was, uh, they were trying to figure out the causes of things. And for the causes of things, you have to pare down your conceptions of what it is you're investigating in order to identify the possibly multiple linear relationships that relate one thing to another. Didn't both Newton and Descartes, they were trying to, they thought of the world as purely material. Exactly. And, and many people still do. Oh, yes. But, that may not be the whole story. No, exactly. That's it. It's part of the story and it's an important part of the story because then we go about using the scientific method which is so appropriate for looking at material things to look at what comes about through the mechanistic relationships of those material things. But as soon as we transcend that and transcend it in a more inclusive direction, suddenly that causal or reductive way of looking at things, the way you would look at 
a process in a factory doesn't do the job anymore. It fails to include things that are important. It fails to include the wonder of the expression on the face of the Mona Lisa. It fails to include why it is that the enduring religions refuse to definitively um, operationalise or make quasi-scientific the knowledge of God. Those things become inexplicable because they don't fit the model. Well, I'm going to play another song for that one. That sounds like a good idea. Oh, that was Luke Hurley again, The Heart of a Child. Uh, sorry about the silence in between, but the CD I put on before, um, the computer didn't like it too much. We're talking with uh, Professor Grant Gilliatt, who's a professor of biomedical ethics and has written a book called... Um, the neurodynamic soul. Now, one of the reasons I, I like um, quantum physics is because it is a bit of a mystery. And I think mystery is important to humanity. Um, 
And I think some of our deepest instincts and our deepest realities are, are still mysteries. Um, it's Roger Penrose thought that mind was um, would have to be explained by quantum mechanics. Well, I'm not so I don't know enough about that to agree or disagree. But where I do agree with him is he also said that he wasn't sure humanity was and the way we looked at the world would ever be able to understand consciousness or mind fully, that it might remain a mystery. And so that's what I liked about him, not the not the solution he gave, but the fact that yeah. he recognized yes. mystery even. He's an avowed atheist, but he has the honesty to, and the intelligence to look deeply. Yes. And know how far we have to come, or um, how deep life is. Do you think, this is something, um, what do you think of near death experience? I have a, I'd like to believe. And because of it, of my own experience in a hospice with my wife, who I saw surrounded by light when she was dying, um, that was both in her but also surrounding her. Um, so it makes me want to feel that our that our mind or our conscious or soul is more than the material, and there's, doesn't necessarily, maybe it's transformed instead of denied totally when you would die. Yes. Well, I have a, I, that is a We very, can explain it the way I know. I know, but that is a very inspiring um, story about you at your wife's dying bedside. And perhaps it can give us an entree into life after death. And that after I die, which may not be too long because of my cardiac and uh, cerebrovascular difficulties, um... I like to think that something will live on. That something is the ideas that the physical type and the frail paper has recorded of me, but also nowadays that's available in digital form on the internet. Because... That is a kind of immortality when you think of it. You are no longer yourself somatically and somatosensorily part of the interacting physical world, but in the world of minds and memories and mixed memories, some fond, some whimsical, some realistically 
um, aware of your faults and failings, you live on. And your children and grandchildren and other friends and relatives carry those memories and thoughts that you have shared with them into the future that you are no longer physically part of. And to say that those thoughts and memories and ideas emerging from your print-on-paper words are merely material is to um, kind of offer a simple-minded travesty of what they really are. The ideas are recorded on paper in ink, but they're not any more than embodied or recorded there. The substance of them that inspires and attracts the equally immaterial thoughts of others lives on. And in that sense, you live on in those very vivid and sometimes inspired memories, just as we relive some of the deepest and most profound thoughts of departed people like Aristotle and Descartes. Descartes is not dead, though physically we know that his embodiment is now dissolved, but his ideas, his mind, that which animated him and drove him to question things and even while um, living as a person deeply involved in the Roman Catholic Church, he... um, extended in thought beyond that um, ethosphere, if we want to use the word etho instead of eco. He extended beyond it into a world of philosophical inquiry, which many, even those who did not share that particular belonging with him, could themselves assimilate and explore in their own way. And therefore, that is the kind of life after death which actually means something. I agree with you about that meaning, but I also wonder about people's writing about their near-death experiences. And of course, if you have an experience like that, why it's going to your own culture and your beliefs about your particular religion or for instance the white robes and so on that that may be your culture but the experience itself may mean something that we don't understand i mean physicists talk about uh, dimensional universes uh, that there's more than one universe. Now, I find that hard to understand, and I'm not sure I believe it. Right. But they 
talk about it like it might be true, and I can't say it isn't true any more than I could say it is true. But also I think I could say the same thing about the soul, that there might be something in our soul that is basically immortal, immortal and, trans, and transcending. Well, leaving it as a mystery, um, I have always found very unsatisfying. Yeah. I became a brain surgeon because I was intrigued by the mystery of neuroscience and the way it made thinking and human um, spirituality and relationship um, con uh, concrete, to misuse the term, or biological um, in the brain. Um, and therefore I look to the brain for the ongoing source of my interaction with the world. So if my brain no longer exists and functions in that sense, which of course it stops to do as soon as I become brain dead, then my ongoing interaction with other brains in the world is through the meaning of my ideas and writings. And that meaning goes beyond a mathematical or digitalizable kind of abstraction into a deeply human kind of understanding of what my life was like as a person. And what it was like was not only cognitive, but emotive, spiritual, relational, all those things that appear sometimes in a relatively um, light form or yet still a deeply meaningful form, if you can mix those two, which seem contradictory, in my writing. So I like my books to have personal touches in them. I like to think about the complexity of human experience by trying to describe the physical events that are relevant to my daughter coming home from school. She calls out, hi, Dad. And not only do I hear her if I'm home, but... In some sense, a remote version of those sound waves impacts upon every um, little creature crawling across the lawn in our backyard. And the infinite complexity of the physical realisation of that moment completely transcends or outstrips the ability of a mechanistic causal account to actually encompass because it becomes far too 
extensive and complex and inclusive for that. Whereas if I'm at home and I hear her call out, Hi, Dad, there is a meaning to that, a meaning, because I respond to verbal meaning and I respond to personal um, Mm. communication in a way that the worms in my backyard or the Mm. things crawling across the grass do not. Mm. What do you think of somebody like Martin Buber who thought that you could, if you were present to to another human being or an animal, certainly, but even to a, a tree, that somehow you became very close to that tree or almost a part of it, that that you were connected in a very real way. Well, I think that is a very ancient intuition. And I think Bieber, with his very transcendent form of Christian belief, which defied reducing to quasi-scientific terms, deeply appreciated that. He understood there was a connection between him and the tree, just as contemporary conservationists understand there is a connection between them and the natural world that goes far beyond what we could cognitively abstract Mm. from. Yes, and he proved by his experience and his changing philosophy that uh, Judaism was still alive. Yes, and of course it is. I mean, the greatest Jew, some would think, was the Jew who proved that an attempt to quasi-scientifically abstract from every human belief ultimately will end with the destruction of the human body and that that, in a sense, was not the destruction of the person. Even if that ending was very violent and regrettable, Do you think that if we think of ourselves as very similar to a machine or a computer, this may encourage us to treat people as if they were machines or computers? I think it's one of the most dangerous heresies that the world fosters at the moment. What are your hopes? That... Folk will nurture each other in love the way Mowgli was nurtured in love and the way we failed to nurture Opo the crazy dolphin. Okay, thank you very much for coming on Community Air Chaos and... We'll have to have another discussion again. Amen to that. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.